Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from the Horsham Church of Christ. For more information, please visit our website at www.horsham.org.au. Well, good morning, our friends in Horsham. Matthew Balty here. If you've got your scriptures there, would you open up to James uh, chapter 5, beginning at, uh, at verse 13? Now, our heart this morning for Kathy and I is to encourage you and build you up so that you can continue to push in prayer. And this scripture here in James 5 uh, is one that uh, encourages us to continue uh, to pray. So I'll begin at uh, James chapter 5, starting at verse 13. Is any one of you in trouble? They should pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? They should call the elders of the church and pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. Well, what a powerful passage of scripture this is, particularly in relation to prayer. And the context of, uh, of this scripture is that it's teaching about praying for those who are sick and asking you to call the, the elders of the church and pray for you. But by the time we get to the end of this teaching on prayer, it's uh, James opens it right out much further than just praying for the sick because he introduces the, uh, the example of Elijah and his prayer uh, for the children of Israel. And so we want to come and, and pick up this little theme. But the key, the key verse in this is, uh, is halfway through verse 16. And I'm going to give you a, a fuller translation of, uh, of James 5, uh, 16b, picking up the words that are used by multiple translations uh, with this passage. So the authorised and the NIV and the New Living and the American Standard and the like. So this is what it says. The fervent, heartfelt, earnest, persistent prayer of a righteous person has great power and accomplishes much. Hear those words again. Fervent, heartfelt, earnest, persistent prayer of a righteous person has great power and accomplishes much. Now, before you disqualify yourself from even listening to this because you say, well, I don't qualify for that because I'm not like Elijah. I'm not like James. I'm not like one of the apostles. I'm just a regular kind of member here and, and I do my best, but I'm not particularly righteous. My dear friends, in Galatians 2 and verse 20, we're told that we have been crucified with Christ, that it's no longer us that lives, that Christ who lives in us 
and the life that we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and died for us. You see, our righteousness is not dependent. It's not dependent on me. It's dependent on what Jesus has done. We've died by confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead. The scripture says you will be saved. This is not a work that we've done. This is a work that Jesus did at Calvary. This is the work of the cross. So a righteous person, according to the scriptures, is one who believes on the name of Jesus. Someone who accepts that Jesus died as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, a righteous person who is someone who is prepared to testify or confess with their mouth what the word of God says that the blood of Jesus does for them, because that's what declares us righteous. Ephesians 1 and, uh, and verse 7 declares that. Uh, it's the blood of Jesus that makes us righteous. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all our sin. It's the blood of Jesus that sanctifies us. So who can come and begin to consider this type of prayer that we're speaking about here in James 5? every single believer in Jesus. You've confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you've believed in your heart. And I want you to notice both those are used, your head and your heart. It's that combination of the two where your head and your heart are in agreement. Using the language of Romans uh, uh, chapter 8, it's where the Spirit of God testifies with our spirit that we are his children, that we can cry, Abba, Father. This is where our righteousness comes from. Our heavenly father who gave his son that we might be declared righteous. In that place of our newfound righteousness in Christ, God is actually looking for those who will stand and plead and pray on behalf of others. This is what this whole scripture is in James 5. It's about calling the leaders of the church to come and pray for someone. It addresses the issue of Elijah standing and praying for the children of Israel who had walked away from the Lord. They weren't walking in righteousness. Elijah was, but they were, they were worshipping Baals. But Elijah stood in prayer. In fact, it tells us that he prayed probably for three and a half years that it wouldn't rain. Now, what was Elijah carrying in his heart at that time? The children of Israel. He was desperately, desperately pleading that they would turn back to the Lord. In fact, if you go to 1 Kings 18 and look at that account encounter with Elijah on Mount Carmel, his basic question is to the children of Israel, well, if the Lord, if he is God, then worship him. But if Baal is God, then worship him. So, so this context now in prayer that we're looking at in James 5 is to actually do with us praying or pleading for others. And that's why I uh, emphasized all those words about fervent, heartfelt, earnest, persistent prayer. Uh, an old-fashioned word that we would use for this would be travail, hanging in there in prayer, pushing in prayer, continuing 
consistently to pray and believe that the Lord wants no one to be lost, but all to come to salvation. So God is looking for someone who will stand in the gap. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to intercede for us, to intercede on our behalf so that our sin might be forgiven. Now, understanding that and having confessed Jesus as Lord and believed in our heart that God raised him from the dead, Jesus, the chief intercessor, lives in us. So he's continuing that work of intercession in us for others. That's why in that James passage, it says that the fervent, heartfelt, earnest, persistent prayer of a righteous person has great power and accomplishes much. This is not because of who we are, but it's because of who lives in us. Jesus Christ, the risen son, lives in us by his spirit. This is the mystery of the gospel. Christ in us, our hope of glory. So let's go a little more closely and look at actually, well, what? how was Elijah praying and what was he praying for and what happened? Because this is the example that James gives to us in considering prayer, in using the words, well, Elijah was someone just like us. In other words, take your example from Elijah. Have a look at what he did and how he prayed. So in the beginning of uh, of first Kings chapter 17 and verse one, he has this encounter with King Ahab and says, uh, it's not going to rain unless I say so. And James uh, five uh, expands on that and says, well, it was actually for about three and a half years that Elijah pleaded or prayed. So he was persistently and consistently praying, Lord, do something with these children of Israel call them back to you. And and the withholding of rain was to prompt them to ask the question, why? Why have you withheld the rain, Lord? Rather than saying, oh God, send us rain, the the more important question is, well, why isn't it raining? Because biblically, the withholding of rain has always been connected with the Lord reminding his people and calling them back to himself to seek him. So Elijah is standing on Mount Carmel and gathers all the people together and issues this challenge to the prophet of prophets of Baal. Well, you offer sacrifice and then uh, and we'll see if God, your God answers uh, with fire and then I'll build a sacrifice and uh, and we'll see uh, what happens. And so there's this challenge to the people. Well, look and watch and then choose who you will worship. So if you turn to... Uh, 1 Kings 18, you can see some of uh, what happened uh, in in this encounter. Firstly, after the prophets of Baal had failed in uh, in, uh, trying to call upon their God to to bring down fire on the sacrifice, verse 30, it says, Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord which was in ruins. He repaired the altar, the place of worship and prayer. 
Elijah rebuilt that. That's what was going on. He was wanting to establish for the children of Israel a place of prayer and worship where they had been bowing down to false gods. He's now calling them, come and stand and watch. And it says, Elijah took 12 stones and he repaired the altar. Now, why did he choose 12? Because 12 represented the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes that had crossed over uh, the Jordan River and where uh, Joshua had laid 12 stones at Gilgal as a memorial that we're all together. But at this stage in the history of Israel under Ahab, in fact, even further back uh, in uh, uh, just after Solomon, the kingdom is divided. So Elijah is talking to the 10 tribes here, but he rebuilt the stone altar out of 12 tribes saying, we all belong together. We shouldn't be separated and apart. Oh, what a word this is to the church in our nation today of of coming against our division and how we've split and split and had splits upon splits and we've divided ourselves and we've argued and we've competed and we've uh, we've set up uh, against one another and yet the Lord is with Elijah rebuilding that place of worship and prayer where everybody can come together to worship the Lord and to seek his face and to cry out to him on behalf of our nation. And as uh, as Elijah rebuilds the altar and he places the sacrifice upon it, notice that blood has to be shed. And he prays a very simple prayer. He speaks to the Lord, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. This is in verse 36. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. And then he prays probably the most simple prayer in the scriptures. Verse 37. Answer me, Lord, answer me. In Hebrew, that's just three Hebrew words. Answer me, Lord, answer me. That's all he prays. He doesn't shout at the heavens. He doesn't rant or rave or rebuke or demand or declare or do anything. He just says, Lord, answer, answer me. And fire falls from heaven. That's when the cry goes up from the people. Oh, the Lord, he is God. You see, this kind of prayer Persistent prayer for three and a half years in battling with the with the king of uh, uh, King Ahab, in battling with the unbelief in Israel and crying out to the Lord for his people. Three and a half years of prayer. Finally, it comes to this place where the people's hearts are turned back to the Lord and they cry, the Lord, he is God. Oh, friends, isn't that what the Lord Jesus did when he stood on the outskirts of Jerusalem and wept in prayer? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And I'm sure many of you have cried out and wept to the Lord. Oh, Australia. Oh, Victoria. Oh, Horsham. Turn to the Lord. Because, friends, the Lord is longing to gather your community 
to himself as a hen gathers its chicks. At this time in our history, how we need to be gathered to the Lord under his protective wings. James points us to how we are to pray persistently, fervently, earnestly, not because of how good we are, but because it's Jesus who lives in us. And as Elijah prayed, as is the example given by James, fire fell from heaven. I want you to notice the order that this happened in. The altar was repaired. Blood was shed and fire fell from heaven. First comes the worship and the prayer. Then the precious blood of Jesus is applied not only to our hearts, but to the hearts of those around us as we plead and intercede. And the fire of the glory of God falls. And you might be saying, well, yeah, that's all fine because that's just, you know, that's just a great biblical example. Um, and uh, but that doesn't really that doesn't really cut it in Australia. You don't realize what Aussies are like. You don't realize just how hard and crusty our hearts are. My dear friends, we have a strong and solid history in this nation of this sort of prayer that we're reading about here. The sort of prayer that James describes as fervent and heartfelt and earnest and persistent, that it has great power and accomplishes much. The sort of prayer that we see Elijah pleading for three and a half years, standing on the mountain and saying, answer me, Lord, answer me. And then bowing and waiting on the Lord as he puts his head between his knees and says to his servant, go and look, has the rain come? Has the rain come? Has the rain come? Because friends, first the altar is repaired and then comes the blood followed by the fire. We can't do anything about that. Jesus has already shed his blood and it's the father that pours out the fire and then comes the rain of his spirit to wet and soak the soil of this nation, to bring forth crops in the natural and in the spiritual. Has this ever happened before in our nation? Or is this just as we consider most of us, well, that's all fine, that's okay, Jesus can pray like that and it happens and, and maybe even uh, the apostles can pray like that in uh, the book of Acts and maybe Elijah and oh, maybe even King David or, uh, or Isaiah or Daniel, but no, it doesn't, it doesn't work here. Well, friends, it does and it has. I want to give you uh, two examples this morning to show you how this works in the Australian context. Back in the 1960s, in a small New South Wales uh, town in the northern, northern areas of New South Wales, there was a tiny little town, very, very small town, just a post office and a school and a tennis court. And there was an elderly lady of prayer. She was a prayer warrior. She had uh, learned how to travail in prayer and plead and cry out for the lost. And her heart was for the lost in her little community. But she was growing old and she was concerned that, that there was nobody who was going to pick up her mantle in prayer. 
So the Lord showed her a, a, a number of young people to draw alongside herself, maybe half a dozen or a dozen, to train them and teach them to plead and pray for the lost, and particularly to plead and pray for their lost family members. So she gathered these young people around her and taught them how to pray, to cry out to the Lord, to plead for their salvation. Now, that kind of prayer sometimes isn't particularly quiet. So instead of meeting inside this lady's house, they would go out and pray in her chookyard. So this is a small country town. She had a large chookyard. And here's this group of sometimes half a dozen, maybe a dozen uh, young people with this elderly lady pleading for their family members, for their unsaved husbands or unsaved family members or parents and crying out and pleading for them, pleading for their salvation, pleading week after week that the Lord would send his spirit to convict them of their sin and draw them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Well, on one of these days, one of those young ladies who was a young married woman her husband was violently opposed to the gospel. And one day he came storming across the paddock to drag her out of that prayer meeting in the chookyard. And she saw him coming and she didn't want to have a, a scene with all her friends around. So she walked out to meet him so that there wasn't a big scene in the chookyard. And they met in the middle of the main street of this tiny little country town. This uh, violent man raised his fist to beat his wife. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit fell from heaven and knocked him to the ground and radically saved him there and then on the ground of the main street in this little country town. That spark set a mighty blaze of revival across that whole region of the New England uh, in, uh, in northern New South Wales. Community after community was swept into the kingdom. Hundreds upon hundreds of indigenous and non-indigenous people were swept up into the kingdom. The uh, indigenous aunties tell us that uh, at that time there was only one family in that whole region who wasn't touched by the gospel and swept into the kingdom. They were meeting day and night for prayer down by the river. People were walking through the bush with little fire sticks to join all these prayer meetings. This is in the 1960s, before Facebook, before WhatsApp, before uh, any form of, of easy communication. They were gathering and meeting in town halls all over those little country towns. People used to have to push through the crowds to get to the front to offer their heart to the Lord Jesus. This swept an entire generation into the kingdom of God. Friends, this is Australia. This is country Australia. And it started with one elderly lady fervently, passionately pleading for the lost in her tiny little country town and teaching others to pray like her. But telling you those stories in Victoria is like taking coals to Newcastle. I'm not sure if you're aware of your prayer history in Victoria. Because you have a mighty history of prayer in that state. Let me take you back to the late 1890s in Adelaide. 
where a prayer movement began, where about six or seven thousand believers were meeting regularly in prayer and Bible unions, they were called, to read, these are in small groups, to read a chapter of the Bible, to pray over that and say, Lord, do it in us and show us how to live that out. They would pray and then they would read revival stories from the second great awakening that was occurring across America and Great Britain. And they would encourage each other in prayer. And that began to grow. And so there were six or 7,000 meeting regularly in these homes. That's a large number in Adelaide in the late 1800s. One of those people from Adelaide traveled to Melbourne and introduced that style of prayer into Melbourne. And in a very short period of time, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of believers were gathering in small groups all across Melbourne, praying and reading a chapter of the scriptures and and encouraging one another with revival stories from all around the globe. That number of believers praying swelled to over 100,000 people by 1901-1902. The population of Melbourne at that time was only 500,000. So that's almost 20% of the entire population of Melbourne meeting and gathering regularly for prayer. As that great prayer wave built across Melbourne, things were stirring all around the nation. They were stirring in Adelaide. They were stirring in Brisbane. They were stirring in Sydney and in the Illawarra. There were evangelistic meetings happening all around the nation. Tent evangelists had been at work in Sydney and then uh, in uh, Wollongong, and they'd travelled down to Victoria by the beginning of 1902. And they were holding evangelistic tent meetings in all the suburbs of Melbourne. And at that time, the Church of Melbourne had invited the evangelist R.A. Torrey from, uh, from the United States to come and hold an evangelistic crusade for two weeks in Melbourne. So we've got this wave of prayer. We've got uh, gospel tent meetings happening in the suburbs of Melbourne. But then right in the main centre of the city, they were holding these huge rallies uh, and, and Torrey was preaching the gospel over a two week period of time. Thousands upon thousands of people were swept into the kingdom of God and responded to the gospel message all over Melbourne. Huge numbers. Friends, it started with prayer and it stirred the hearts of men and women. It stirred so that the gospel as it was preached was powerful and effective and sinners were being saved. Prayer was continuing to stir. It, it made such an impact on Melbourne that the uh, Christian historian, uh, Dr. Stuart Piggin, says that Melbourne was completely transformed. In fact, Melbourne's name was changed to Marvellous Melbourne. I'm not sure if you're aware that that's your history. You have this amazing history in prayer. So is it possible that fervent, heartfelt, earnest, persistent prayer of a handful of righteous people, people who believe in Jesus and have been washed by his blood in Horsham to gather and pray and believe that their prayer is powerful enough to accomplish the purposes of God and the breaking open of his kingdom in your town. 
This is your call in prayer, my dear friends at Horsham Church of Christ. God has trained you and equipped you in his word. He's built you up that you can worship corporately together. And now he's wanting to call you into the prayer room to plead for your community. Can you hear him calling? We see in the scriptures that it's powerful and effective. We see in the example of the early church that the gospel spread all the way across Jerusalem and then into uh, Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. We can see that as Elijah prayed, a whole nation turned back to the Lord and cried out, He is God. Can you believe for your city? Can you believe for your state? Because it has happened in Victoria before. Believers have gathered and prayed and pleaded with God, studied his word and in unity cried out, Oh Lord, pour out your spirit to revive the church so the gospel will impact our nation. Oh dear friends, can you hear the Lord calling you today? And if that's stirring in your heart, right where you are, in your homes, watching this online, would you bow your head and say, yes, Lord, yes, I hear you calling. Yes, Lord, yes, here I am. Send me, use me. Oh, Lord, pour out a spirit of prayer on me that I might stand and intercede for our city, for our state and our nation. Oh, Lord, here we are. Use us in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.